Episode 2 of Space Prison by Tom Godwin, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Space Prison, Episode 2 Prentice returned to his own group. The dead were buried in shallow graves, and inventory was taken of the promised ample supplies. These were only the few personal possessions the rejects had been permitted to take, plus a small amount of food the Gurns had taken from the Constellation stores. The Gurns had been forced to provide the rejects with at least a little food, had they openly left them to starve, the acceptables, whose families were among the rejects, might have rebelled. Inventory of the firearms and ammunition showed the total to be discouragingly small. They would have to learn how to make and use bows and arrows as soon as possible. With the first party of guards and workmen following him, Prentice went to the tributary valley that emptied into the central valley a mile to the north. It was as good a campsite as could be hoped for, wide and thickly spotted with groves of trees, a creek running down its center. The workmen began the construction of shelters, and he climbed up the side of the nearer hill. He reached its top, his breath coming fast in the gravity that was the equivalent of a burden half his own weight, and saw what the surrounding terrain was like. To the south, beyond the barren valley, the land could be seen dropping in its long sweep to the southern lowlands, where the unicorns and swamp-crawlers lived. To the north the hills climbed gently for miles, then ended under the steeply sloping face of an immense plateau. The plateau reached from western to eastern horizon, still white with the snows of winter and looming so high above the world below that the clouds brushed in and half obscured it. He went back down the hill as Lake's men appeared. They started work on what would be a continuation of his own camp, and he told Lake what he had seen from the hill. "'We're between the lowlands and the highlands,' he said. This will be as near to a temperate altitude as Ragnarok has. We survive here, or else. There's no other place for us to go." An overcast darkened the sky at noon, and the wind died down to almost nothing. There was a feeling of waiting tension in the air, and he went back to the rejects to speed their move into the woods. They were already going in scattered groups, accompanied by prowler guards, but there was no organization and it would be too long before the last of them were safely in the new camp. He could not be two places at once. He needed a sub-leader to oversee the move of the rejects and their possessions into the woods and their placement after they got there. He found the man he wanted already helping the rejects get started a thin, quiet man named Henry Anders, who had fought well against the Prowlers the night before, even though his determination had been greater than his marksmanship. He was the type people instinctively liked and trusted, a good choice for the sub-leader whose job it would be to handle the multitude of details in camp, while he, Prentice, and a second sub-leader he would select handled the defense of the camp and the hunting. I don't like this overcast, he told Anders. Something's brewing. Get everyone moved and at work helping build shelters as soon as you can. I can have most of them there within an hour or two, 
Anders said. Some of the older people, though, will have to take it slow. This gravity, it's already getting the hearts of some of them. How are the children taking the gravity? he asked. The babies, and the very young, it's hard to tell about them yet. But the children from about four on up get tired quickly, go to sleep, and when they wake up, they've sort of bounced back out of it. Maybe they can adapt to some extent to this gravity. He thought of what Lake had said that morning. So many of them are so young, and when you're young, it's too soon to have to die. Maybe the Gurns made a mistake. Maybe Terran children aren't as easy to kill as they thought. It's your job and mine and others to give the children the chance to prove the Gurns wrong. He went his way again to pass by the place where Julia, the girl who had become Billy's foster-mother, was preparing to go to the new camp. It was the second time for him to see Billy that morning. The first time, Billy had still been stunned with grief, and at the sight of his grandfather he had been unable to keep from breaking. "'The guard hit her!' he had sobbed, his torn face bleeding anew as it twisted in crying. He heard her, and Daddy was gone, and then, and then the other things killed her. But now he had had a little time to accept what had happened, and he was changed. He was someone much older, almost a man, trapped for a while in the body of a five-year-old boy. "'I guess this is all, Billy,' Julia was saying, as she gathered up her scanty possessions and Irene's bag. Get your teddy bear, and we'll go." Billy went to his teddy bear and knelt down to pick it up. Then he stopped and said something that sounded like, No. He laid the teddy bear back down, wiping a little dust from its face as in a last gesture of farewell, and stood up to face Julia empty-handed. I don't think I'll want to play with my teddy bear any more, he said. I don't think I'll ever want to play at all any more. Then he went to walk beside her, leaving his teddy bear lying on the ground behind him, and with it leaving forever the tears and laughter of childhood. The overcast deepened, and at mid-afternoon dark storm-clouds came driving in from the west. Efforts were intensified to complete the move before the storm broke, both in this section of the camp and in lakes. The shelters would be of critical importance and they were being built of the materials most quickly available—dead limbs, brush, and the limited amount of canvas and blankets the rejects had. They would be inadequate protection, but there was no time to build anything better. It seemed only a few minutes until the black clouds were overhead, rolling and racing at an incredible velocity. With them came the deep roar of the high wind that drove them and the wind on the ground began to stir restlessly in response, like some monster awakening to the call of its kind. Prentice knew already who he wanted as his other sub-leader. He found him hard at work helping build shelters. Howard Craig, a powerfully muscled man with a face as hard and grim as a cliff of granite. It had been Craig who had tried to save Irene from the prowlers that morning with only an axe as a weapon. Prentice knew him slightly, and Craig still did not know Irene had been his daughter. 
Craig had been one of the field engineers for what would have been the Athena Geological Survey. He had had a wife, a frail blonde girl who had been the first of all to die of hell fever the night before, and he still had their three small children. "'We'll stop with the shelters we already have built,' he told Craig. "'It will take all the time left to us to reinforce them against the wind. I need someone to help me, in addition to Anders. You're the one I want. Send some young and fast-moving men back to last night's camp to cut all the strips of prouder skins they can get. Everything about the shelters will have to be lashed down to something solid. See if you can find some experienced outdoorsmen to help you check the jobs. And tell Anders that women and children only will be placed in the shelters. There will be no room for anyone else, and if any man, no matter what the excuse, crowds out a woman or child, I'll personally kill him." "'You needn't bother,' Craig said. He smiled with savage mirthlessness. I'll be glad to take care of any such incidents." Prentice saw to it that the piles of wood for the guard-fires were ready to be lighted when the time came. He ordered all guards to their stations, there to get what rest they could. They would have no rest at all after darkness came. He met Lake at the north end of his own group's camp, where it merged with Lake's group and no guard-line was needed. Lake told him that his camp would be as well prepared as possible under the circumstances within another hour. By then the wind in the trees was growing swiftly stronger, slapping harder and harder at the shelters, and it seemed doubtful that the storm would hold off for an hour. But Lake was given his hour, plus half of another. Then deep dusk came, although it was not quite sundown. Prentice ordered all the guard-fires lighted and all the women and children into the shelters. Fifteen minutes later the storm finally broke. It came as a roaring downpour of cold rain. Complete darkness came with it, and the wind rose to a velocity that made the trees lean. An hour went by, and the wind increased, smashing at the shelters with a violence they had not been built to withstand. The prowler skin lashings held, but the canvas and blankets were ripped into streamers that cracked like rifle shots in the wind before they were torn completely loose and flung into the night. One by one the guard fires went out and the rain continued, growing colder and driven in almost horizontal sheets by the wind. The women and children huddled in chilled misery in what meager protection the torn shelter still gave and there was nothing that could be done to help them. The rain turned to snow at midnight, a howling blizzard through which Prentice's light could penetrate but a few feet as he made his rounds. He walked with slogging weariness, forcing himself on. He was no longer young, he was fifty, and he had had little rest. He had known, of course, that successful leadership would involve more sacrifice on his part than on the part of those he led. He could have shunned responsibility, and his personal welfare would have benefited. He had lived on alien worlds almost half his life. With a rifle and a knife he could have lived, until Ragnarok finally killed him, with much less effort than that required of him as leader. 
but such an action had been repugnant to him, unthinkable. What he knew of survival on hostile worlds might help the others to survive. So he had assumed command, tolerating no objections and disregarding the fact that he would be shortening his already short time to live on Ragnarok. It was, he supposed, some old instinct that forbade the individual to stand aside and let the group die. The snow stopped an hour later, and the wind died to a frigid moaning. The clouds thinned, broke apart, and the giant star looked down upon the land with its cold blue light. The prowlers came then. They fainted against the east and west guard lines, then hit the south line in a massed, ferocious attack. Twenty got through, past the slaughtered south guards, and charged into the interior of the camp. As they did so, the call, prearranged by him in case of such an event, went up the guard lines. Emergency guards, east and west, close in! In the camp, above the triumphant, demoniac yammering of the prowlers, came the screams of women, the thinner cries of children, and the shouting and cursing of men as they tried to fight the prowlers with knives and clubs. Then the emergency guards, every third man from the east and west lines, came plunging through the snow, firing as they came. The prowlers launched themselves away from their victims and toward the guards, leaving a woman to stagger aimlessly with blood spurting from a severed artery and splashing dark in the starlight on the blue-white snow. The air was filled with the cracking of gunfire and the deep, savage snarling of the prowlers. Half of the prowlers broke through, leaving seven dead guards behind them. The others lay in the snow where they had fallen, and the surviving emergency guards turned to hurry back to their stations, reloading as they went. The wounded woman had crumpled down in the snow, and a first-aid man knelt over her. He straightened, shaking his head, and joined the others as they searched for injured among the prowler's victims. They found no injured, only the dead. The prowlers killed with grim efficiency. John! John Chiara, the young doctor, hurried toward him. His dark eyes were worried behind his frosted glasses, and his eyebrows were coated with ice. The wood is soaked, he said. It's going to be some time before we can get fires going. There are babies that will freeze to death before then. Prentice looked at the prowlers lying in the snow and motioned toward them. They're warm. Have their guts and lungs taken out. What? Then Chiara's eyes lighted with comprehension, and he hurried away without further questions. Prentice went on to make rounds of the guards. When he returned, he saw that his order had been obeyed. The prowlers lay in the snow as before, their savage faces still twisted in their dying snarls, but snug and warm inside them, babies slept. The prowlers attacked again and again, and when the wan sun lifted to shine down on the white, frozen land, there were five hundred dead in Prentice's camp, three hundred by hell fever, and two hundred by prowler attacks. Five hundred! And that had been only one night on Ragnarok. Lake reported over six hundred dead. I hope, he said with bitter hatred, that the Gurn slept comfortably last night. 
"'We'll have to build a wall around the camp to hold out the prowlers,' Prentiss said. "'We don't dare keep using up what little ammunition we have at the rate we've used it the last two nights.' "'That will be a big job in this gravity,' Lake said. "'We'll have to crowd both groups in together to let its circumference be as small as possible.' It was the way Prentiss had planned to do it. One thing would have to be settled with Lake. There could not be two independent leaders over the merged groups. Lake, watching him, said, "'I think we can get along. Alien worlds are your specialty rather than mine. And according to the Ragnarok law of averages, there will be only one of us pretty soon, anyway.' All were moved to the center of the camp area that day, and when the prowlers came that night, they found a ring of guards and fires through which they could penetrate only with heavy sacrifices. There was warmth to the sun the next morning, and the snow began to melt. Work was commenced on the stockade wall. It would have to be twelve feet high, so the prowlers could not jump over it, and, since the prowlers had the sharp claws and climbing ability of cats, its top would have to be surmounted with a row of sharp, outward and downward projecting stakes. These will be set in sockets in the top rail and tied down with strips of prowler skin. The trees of East Camp were festooned for a great distance with the remnants of canvas and cloth the wind had left there. A party of boys, protected by the usual prowler guards, was sent out to climb the trees and recover it. All of it, down to the smallest fragment, was turned over to the women, who were physically incapable of helping work on the stockade wall. They began patiently sewing the rags and tatters back into usable form again. The first hunting party went out and returned with six of the tawny yellow, sharp-horned woods goats, each as large as an earth deer. The hunters reported the woods goats to be hard to stalk and dangerous when cornered. One hunter was killed and another injured because of not knowing that. They also brought in a few of the rabbit-sized scavenger animals. They were all legs and teeth and bristly fur, the meat almost inedible. It would be a waste of the limited ammunition to shoot any more of them. There was a black bark tree which the Dunbark expedition had called the Lance Tree, because of its slender, straightly outthrust limbs. Its wood was as hard as hickory and as springy as cedar. Prentice found two amateur archers who were sure they could make efficient bows and arrows out of the lance-tree limbs. He gave them the job, together with helpers. The days turned suddenly hot, with nights that still went below freezing. The hell fever took a constant, relentless toll. They needed adequate shelters but the dwindling supply of ammunition and the nightly prowler attacks made the need for a stockade wall even more imperative. The shelters would have to wait. He went looking for Dr. Chiara one evening and found him just leaving one of the makeshift shelters. A boy lay inside it, his face flushed with hell fever, and his eyes too bright and too dark as he looked up into the face of his mother who sat beside him. She was dried-eyed and silent as she looked down at him, but she was holding his hand in hers, tightly, desperately, as though she might that way somehow keep him from leaving her. Prentice walked beside Chiara, and when the shelter was behind them, he asked, "'There's no hope?' 
None, Chiara said. There never is with hell fever. Chiara had changed. He was no longer the stocky, cheerful man he had been on the constellation, whose brown eyes had smiled at the world through thick glasses, and who had laughed and joked as he assured his patients that all would soon be well with them. He was thin, and his face was haggard with worry. He had, in his quiet way, been fully as valiant as any of those who had fought the prowlers. He had worked day and night to fight a form of death he could not see, and against which he had no weapon. "'The boy is dying,' Chiara said. "'He knows it, and his mother knows it. I told them the medicine I gave him might help. It was a lie, to try to make it a little easier for both of them when the end comes. The medicine I gave him was a salt tablet. That's all I have." And then, with the first bitterness Prentice had ever seen him display, Tiara said, "'You call me doctor. Everyone does. I'm not. I'm only a first-year intern. I do the best I know how to do, but it isn't enough. It will never be enough.' "'What you have to learn here is something no earth doctor knows or could teach you,' he said. "'You have to have time to learn, and you need equipment and drugs.' "'If I could have antibiotics and other drugs, I wanted to get a supply from the dispensary, but the Gerns wouldn't let me go.' "'Some of the Ragnarok plants might be of a value if a person could find the right ones. I just came from a talk with Anders about that.' He'll provide you with anything possible in the way of equipment and supplies for research, anything in the camp you need to try to save lives. He'll be at your shelter tonight to see what you want. Do you want to try it? Yes, of course. Chiara's eyes lighted with new hope. It might take a long time to find a cure. Maybe we never would. But I'd like to have help so I could try. I'd like to be able, some day once again, to say to a scared kid, Take this medicine, and in the morning you'll be better, and know I told the truth. The nightly prowler attacks continued, and the supply of ammunition diminished. It would be some time before men were skilled in the use of the bows and arrows that were being made, and work on the wall was pushed ahead with all speed possible. No one was exempt from labor on it who could as much as carry the pointed stakes. Children, down to the youngest, worked alongside the men and women. The work was made many times more exhausting by the 1.5 gravity. People moved heavily at their jobs, and even at night there was no surcease from the gravity. They could only go into a coma-like sleep in which there was no real rest and from which they woke tired and aching. Each morning there would be some who did not awaken at all, though their hearts had been sound enough for working on earth or Athena. The killing labor was recognized as necessary, however, and there were no complaints until the morning he was accosted by Peter Bemmon. He had seen Bemmon several times on the Constellation, a big, soft-faced man, who had attached much importance to his role as a minor member of the Athena planning board. But even on the constellation, Bemmon had felt he merited a still higher position, 
and his ingratiating attitude when before his superiors had become one of fault-finding insinuations concerning their ability as compared with his when their backs were turned. His resentment had taken new form on Ragnarok, where his former position was of utterly no importance to anyone, and his lack of any skills or outdoor experience made him only one worker among others. The sun was shining mercilessly hot the day Bemin chose to challenge Prentice's wisdom as leader. Bemin was cutting and sharpening stakes, a job the sometimes too lenient Anders had given him when Bemin had insisted his heart was on the verge of failure from doing heavier work. Prentice was in a hurry, and would have gone on past him, but Bemin halted him with a sharp command. "'You! Wait a minute!' Bemin had a hatchet in his hand, but only one stake lay on the ground, and his face was red with anger, not exertion. Prentice stopped, wondering if Bemin was going to ask for a broken jaw, and Bemin came to him. "'How long,' Bemin asked, anger making his voice a little thick, "'do you think I'll tolerate this absurd situation?' "'What situation?' Prentice asked. This stupid insistence upon confining me to manual labor. I'm the single member on Ragnarok of the Athena Planning Board, and surely you can see that this bumbling confusion of these people, Bemin indicated the hurrying, laboring men, women, and children around him, can be transformed into efficient, organized effort only through proper supervision. Yet, my abilities along such lines are ignored, and I've been forced to work as a common laborer, a woodchopper. He flung the hatchet down viciously into the rocks at his feet, breathing heavily with resentment and challenge. I demand the respect to which I'm entitled. Look, Prentice said. He pointed to the group just then going past them. A sixteen-year-old girl was bent almost double under the weight of the pole she was carrying, her once pretty face flushed and sweating. Behind her, two twelve-year-old boys were dragging a still larger pole. Behind them came several small children, each of them carrying as many of the pointed stakes as he or she could walk under, no matter if it was only one. All of them were trying to hurry, to accomplish as much as possible and no one was complaining, even though they were already staggering with weariness. "'So you think you're entitled to more respect?' Prentice asked. "'Those kids would work harder if you were giving them orders from under the shade of a tree. Is that what you want?' Bemin's lips thinned, and hatred was like a sheen on his face. Prentice looked from the single stake Bemin had cut that morning, to Bemin's white, unblistered hands. He looked at the hatchet that Bemin had thrown down in the rocks, and at the V-notch broken in its keen-edged blade. It had been the best of the very few hatchets they had. "'The next time you even nick that hatchet, I'm going to split your skull with it,' he said. "'Pick it up and get back to work. I mean work.' You'll have broken blisters on every finger tonight, or you'll go on the log-carrying force tomorrow. Now move!" What Bemin had thought to be his wrath deserted him before Prentice's fury. He stopped to obey the order, 
but the hatred remained on his face, and when the hatchet was in his hands, he made a last attempt to bluster. The day may come when we'll refuse to tolerate any longer your sadistic displays of authority. Good, Prentice said. Anyone who doesn't like my style is welcome to try to change it, or to try to replace me. With knives or clubs, rifles or broken hatchets, Bemin, any way you want it, and any time you want it. I— Bemin's eyes went from the hatchet in his half-raised hand to the long knife in Prentice's belt. He swallowed with a convulsive jerk of his Adam's apple, and his hatchet-bearing arm suddenly wilted. I don't want to fight to replace you. He swallowed again, and his face forced itself into a sickly attempt at an ingratiating smile. I didn't mean to imply any disrespect for you or the good job you're doing. I'm very sorry. Then he hurried away, like a man glad to escape, and began to chop stakes with amazing speed. But the sullen hatred had not been concealed by the ingratiating smile, and Prentice knew Bemin was a man who would always be his enemy. End of Episode 2